you're listening to this podcast right now, and I know you are, then congratulations, you are an alive person. But you might not realize how close you came to that not being true. If you were born before 1983, you came very close to dying in a nuclear apocalypse. And if you were born after 1983, you came very close to not being born at all. On this episode, we'll look into why that's the case. This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today in the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi, Nathan. Hi, everyone. I want to tell you a story. All right, tell me a story. When I was a little kid, I was out in this big park behind my house, and one of my older cousins was there. He was like four or five years older than me, and so I was I was only about seven, and so this guy seemed like a pretty cool guy. Right. I wanted to impress him. Sure. And he had brought this sort of cheap old golf club with him and some golf balls and his plan was to go out into that park and so to knock some golf balls around okay and like i was the the little yappy cartoon dog at his heels (laughs) jumping around being all i want to help i want to help and so he would hit the golf balls out into the park i would go out into the park grab the golf balls come back okay i was getting tired and i thought i've got a much better idea I'm going to go out to where he's hitting the balls, and I'll wait for them. (laughs) And then once he's hit them all, I'll gather them all up, and I'll make fewer trips. Okay. It's a very good idea. Okay. With no flaws. No flaws at all. Nothing could go wrong. Nothing. So I'm out there, and I see him, and I see this very clearly in my memory. Of course, we know memory is faulty, Mm. but I still have this very clear picture in my head, and I can see him way off in the distance. And he hits the ball, and I remember that he was far enough away so that the sound of the ball striking came after me seeing it. Okay. I remember thinking, interesting. Right. But then the ball arcs through the sky towards me, and I see my cousin frantically waving. Like he's waving as if he's trying to land an airplane or something, and he's trying to get my attention. And And you're looking at him being like, why is he waving so much? And maybe missing the important thing that he's waving about. Right. The important thing that he's waving about is that there is a golf ball moving extremely quickly directly towards my head. It is, I can see it, it seems like it's going really slowly when it's coming up, and then all of a sudden it goes extremely quickly, and it goes right by my left ear. Oh, wow. To the point where I could feel the air move. Even now, I I think back and I think, okay, so if any tiny little thing had been different, if I had been standing a couple inches to my left, Mm -hmm. if there had been a small gust of breeze, if he had hit the ball in a slightly different place, if the ball had been a slightly different weight, or if there had been a bit of dirt on it. You know, chaos theory stuff. Right. If any of those things happen, then I get that golf ball full in the skull. Yep. And you know, I think that kills me. Yeah. I think that golf ball goes through my skull and it kills me. Right. Or maybe... Something just horrendous, just horrendous yeah. happens, maybe, right? Maybe like you lose an eye, yeah. or or you all ha- of my you, teeth, all of your teeth, and my lower jaw. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was a terrifying moment to the point where sometimes, still in those moments when your your brain is is trying to irritate you in the middle of the night instead yeah. of sleeping, and your brain starts feeding you all of these things that you can retroactively be terrified about, my brain will give me that memory, and I'll think. I came so close to complete destruction. I came so close to catastrophe. I came so close to disaster. 
And the only thing that saved me were these tiny little differences. Which we might call luck. Yeah. Yeah, we would call luck. And this event happened to me in the, in the hazy year, way off in the distance, of 1983. 1983. Now, here's the wild thing about that story. Yeah. As you know, and I know, that's pretty close to destruction for me. Yep. Yeah. That was not the closest I came to destruction that year, was it? Amazingly not. Yeah. Because I have a couple of stories for you. Okay. These come all from 1983. And they're a similar story to yours in that it involves potential destruction, but now not of just one individual, potentially everybody. We're looking at three months from September to November in 1983, where the world came close to complete global nuclear annihilation more than once. Certainly two times, potentially three times. It is just unbelievable how we escaped it. Mm -hmm. Are you retroactively terrified? I'm retroactively terrified. And I'm also, it really came down to luck. But we got to set the scene, I think, mm -hmm. to talk about what happened in 1983. Now, I have some spotty memories of 1983. At the time, I was five years old. so Playing um, with Smurfs? Probably, yeah. We looked up, uh, I think the Eurythmics had a... a yeah, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. Yeah. A maniac. Maniac. She's a maniac, a maniac, that's for sure. And she's dancing like she's never danced before. I mean, some of these songs have really withstood the test of time. It was a hip time to be alive. The 80s were shoulder pads. Neon. And neon. Big and hair. Big hair, exactly. There was a, a tremendous were. optimism in yep. the West. Uh, coming out of the, the 70s and coming out of recession and the oil crisis and the malaise. Right. There was a new morning. Right. It was a new morning in America. Exactly. I think there was a president uh, who had that as his campaign slogan. And you're absolutely right. Things were changing, but also to some extent, things were getting a little grimmer. In the context of the Cold War, we had the 50s ramping up into the 60s were pretty tense. The Berlin airlift, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Exactly. The Berlin Wall. Things were getting grimmer in the context of the Cold War. The 50s and into the 60s was a real ramp up in terms of tensions between the Soviet Union and the West, which maybe at this point I should define a little more clearly. The West, as we've often talked about it on this podcast, is more strictly the NATO alliance. So this was the, uh, again, what we would tend to call the West, America and European allies, West Germany, Great Britain, France, places like that. Well, listen, and there was the Warsaw Pact. This was the Eastern Bloc. So this was the Soviet Union and allied states like Poland, Czechoslovakia, places like that. And there was essentially an agreement that if anybody was attacked on one side, this would call all the forces into action. So if West Germany were attacked by the Soviet Union, all the NATO states would be involved in a retaliation. And the same thing with the Warsaw states. If, say, Poland were attacked by the West, then this would entail a retaliation from uh, all of the Eastern Bloc. And so you have this real hardening of the fronts that are established, well, I guess in the very late 40s into the 50s, of ramping up of tension into the 60s. But then there is a bit of a thawing of the 
Cold War tensions in the 70s. In West Germany, for example, there's an acceptance of the fact that East Germany exists. It's a you good know, start. It's, it's not something that is just a temporary solution. It's, it's there to stay. And West Germany, in order to kind of move on also from the Second World War, is willing to accept the status quo. And other countries are as well. There seems to be, you know, Nixon goes to China. And there are these moments in the 70s that seem to indicate that things are thawing a little bit, that maybe some kind of dialogue can be started. But then in the 80s, as you say, it's on the one hand a time of optimism and hope, but on the other hand, it's also a real ramping up of the Cold War tensions and anxieties. Also, discursively, we have Ronald Reagan comes out with his evil empire speech. He's a real saber rattler. Yeah, where he just, he says that the Soviet Union is essentially the locus of all evil in the world today. It's a godless state. It's an inhuman state. It's a place of evil. Yeah, I mean, from a theoretical perspective, things were becoming more Manichaean. Yes, which maybe we need a definition for that. Definitely. Manichaeanism, it's based on an old uh, religion that, that emerges in like the 200 ADs. But the basic idea is that when we use the word Manichaean, we're saying that there's a dualistic look at the world, that there is good and evil, there isn't gray, there isn't, you know, complexities. There is simply a good side and an evil side, and everything in the world can be understood as part of that massive epic battle. Right. And in the case of the 1980s, I feel like we did start bringing that language back, that evil versus good, that demonic versus the side of the angels, whatever you want to say. And when things get more Manichaean, they tend to get more entrenched, and it becomes more likely that we'll end up with some sort of terrible violence. Right. And this Manichaean worldview was not just something that was pervasive in the United States or in the NATO allied countries. It was also something that the Soviet Union's leadership was in the grips of. So in 1983, we are the, the head of the Soviet Union is a guy named Yuri Andropov. Now, he is a KGB hardliner. He was the head of the KGB during uh, his predecessor's reign. And he, among other things on his CV, and I won't list too many, but he was responsible for crushing the Prague Spring, this democratic uprising in Czechoslovakia about trying to ameliorate some of the harshness of the Soviet system. And he sent in tanks. He was also for the invasion of Afghanistan, which, of course, we have a podcast on. There were other people like General Vladimir Khrushchev, who was at that point in 1983 uh, head of the foreign intelligence branch of the KGB, and he was a hardliner who advocated for first strike policies against the evil Americans because they were, again, in this kind of dualistic worldview, they were all evil, they were probably going to attack us. And so the way you deal with a nuclear attack is by, if you know it's coming for sure, you attack them first and incapacitate them so that you're safe. Yeah, if you know you're about to get into a bar fight, you take the first swing. Right. And in which case you can kind of maybe, if you hit hard enough, avoid a lot of damage to yourself. Yeah, exactly. This is the political world. This is the Cold War world that we're in in 1983. And 
the leaders of the Soviet Union, and potentially I would maybe say also of America at that point, are quite paranoid about each other. They are sure that the other side is really going to launch a first strike. In fact, in the Soviet Union, it went so far that they had started a few years earlier Project Ryan. That, now, that is an anglicized version of that term because I've heard members of the Soviet Union who were part of the KGB or, or part of the military, and they pronounce it Ryan. But if you look at it on paper, it's... looks like the English name Ryan. It looks like the English name Ryan, and English speakers pronounce it that way. This was essentially with the assumption, Andropov's assumption, that the Americans were going to attack. This was amassing evidence that... And, and also a kind of um, checklist of what to look for if the Americans were actually going to create that first strike. Yeah, so let's, let's set the scene here. It's the late 70s. Brezhnev is still the leader of the Soviet Union, but he's old, he's sick, he's feeble. At this point, the real leader of the Soviet Union, the one making the big decisions, is actually... Andropov. Andropov, who's the head of the KGB. Right. And he's been the head of the KGB... Forever. Forever. Imagine two things. One, the sort of person you have to be to be able to survive as the head of the KGB for decades. Yep. Two, what being the head of the KGB for decades would do to you as a person. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. So imagine those two things, and then that's Andropov. He is convinced. You know, it's funny, when I was reading this, I thought back to one of our favorite uncover-up personalities, Captain Ruppelt. Really? That's funny because I was going to mention him in just a moment. Well, he's going to get two shout-outs. <laughs> and the thing that, that reminded me of Ruppelt is that if you want to really research something, and Ruppelt was the head of Blue Book originally, he legit wanted to find out what the UFOs were. And so, as we've talked about many times, if you came to him and you said, I believe in UFOs, I'm going to prove it, he'd say, I don't want you on my team. If you came in and said... I don't believe in UFOs, and I'm going to prove they don't exist. He doesn't want you on his team. He wants people who say, I don't know. I don't know. Let's look and see where the evidence goes. Because if you do anything else, you fall prey to something called confirmation bias. Right. Where you notice the information that supports what you want, and you ignore the information that doesn't support what you want, or that goes against what you want. Now, here's the problem with Ryan, or Rian. And Dropov is the head of the KGB, if you work for the KGB, how much do you want to please the head of the KGB? This is to some extent maybe an existential question. Like it really matters. And actually, this is going to come up later when we get to the last part of this story about the quality of the intelligence that the KGB is getting precisely because the agents are trying to provide the intelligence that they think that their leaders want. And they're doing that because why? Because it's a dangerous system. Yeah. And if you say the wrong thing, okay, look, this is not the time of Stalin. So things have thawed to that extent. You're not, you're not going to be shipped off to the gulag, but it is still existential in the sense of keeping your job or at least being able to get promotions, things like that, where people who are not willing to play the bureaucratic corporate game are not promoted and often demoted. Yeah. Often demoted to places they didn't want to go to, like, you know, the middle Siberia. of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the secret to success, if you're in the KGB, isn't to find the truth. It's to find the truth that the boss wants. Right. 
There's a lot in these systems that I'm starting to see merge more and more in corporate systems and yep. in and other kinds of discourses where really compliance is much more important than a kind of rigorous investigation. Oh, yeah. Compliance was a serious issue in Soviet systems, but it wasn't unique to Soviet systems. That's right. So here we have a situation where the boss, head of the KGB and Dropoff, is a rabid, paranoid guy. Yeah, and at this point, he is really old. He has also lived through a lot of stuff that would make you quite suspicious of foreign powers. I mean, he's lived through the invasion by the Nazis of the Soviet Union, which, of course, the Nazis claimed that that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And then suddenly there they are. He's lived through the Hungarian uprising. Yeah, I mean, he didn't choose to be paranoid. But the, the sort of the system that he was in and the experiences that he had, he was rapidly paranoid. He was also like uh, he was a fundamentalist. He wasn't a religious fundamentalist, but he was a, a Soviet fundamentalist. Soviet fundamentalist. I like that. And a terrifying guy has a lot of power. And he is telling you as KGB agents, the Americans are going to launch a first strike. Right. Go find me evidence that they're going to launch a first strike. Right. Which is very different than saying, hey, go find out if the Americans are going to launch a first strike. So there was a bunch of indicators that he was asking people to look for as par part of Project Ryan. And a lot of them were pretty reasonable things like troop movements. Yeah. Or... Cipher, uh, cipher traffic. Yeah, cipher traffic. Like how many secret messages are being passed along? Where are the ballistic missile subs? Like right. this, this kind of stuff. Armament and weapons buildup. Yeah, yeah. All the, those, those are all pretty reasonable indicators that a, uh, that a country is going to launch an attack. But the KGB agents needed more than that. They looked at everything. How many lights were on at night in a government building? Right. How full was the parking lot? Yeah. How many people were in line to donate blood? Yeah. Now, to some extent, this was, though, because of the inability of Soviet agents to penetrate. Now, mm -hmm. there were a few Soviet agents quite high up in NATO infrastructure, but Part of the problem was that they didn't have, they weren't really connected in any meaningful way. And so they, yeah, they would do things like stand outside of buildings, government buildings, counting how many lights were on and comparing that to other nights to see, oh, maybe people are working later. Oh, now. there's more lights on tonight. And here's why this is terrible. If you're paranoid and you think your partner is cheating on you, yeah, everything they do could be contributing to evidence that they're cheating. Right. They get a haircut, cheating. Right. They go to the gym, cheating. Right. They didn't pick up the time you called. Yeah, cheating. They get a text and they don't pick up their phone right away and they check it later. Like basically every tiny little thing they do now contributes to this tapestry of them cheating until eventually you become convinced that it's going to happen and maybe you break up with them because of it. Right, right. Now, instead this of... Is, and this was called confirmation bias that yeah. you mentioned earlier. Yeah, and so that's what what Ryan is basically contributing to in the high levels of Soviet government, they're becoming increasingly convinced that a first strike is imminent in part because they had already been convinced of it. And now all these KGB agents are running around trying to please their boss by finding any kind of scrap of whatever yeah. that indicates it. So already this is dicey. It is dicey, but now we also have actual indicators, like real things that are happening. So we have the American president saber-rattling, saying things like, this is the evil empire, kind of bringing the discourse to a much higher pitch. We have the Pershing-2 missile, which is now a new missile, a nuclear missile, that 
can deliver, because of these are being placed in NATO countries, can deliver a nuclear bomb to Poland or Czechoslovakia in, I think, under 10 minutes. Yeah. So this means now that your ability to respond to a first strike has been radically reduced. Back in the days when you have ICBMs being launched from America, from where are they kept? Are they kept in Wisconsin? In middle America. In middle America. So you, you have some time to organize a retaliation. Yeah, I mean, back in the days of bombers, you'd have hours. So now there are really, there do seem to be real indications that things have gotten more tense. That then combined with the less rigorous indicators, I think really contributed in the Soviet Union to a sense that this is coming any this is moment. This to go down. And of course, this kind of rhetoric existed on both sides. The argument is, if you know it's coming, it really does make sense to strike first. Take that first swing. that is the way you are going to survive. Now, that sets the scene of 1983. Specifically, we are... I'm going to take us now to an event that happens at the beginning of September in 1983. So this is the backdrop. We've got, the, we've got America and the Soviet Union... Manichaean battle to the death. With people on the inside who are sure that the other side is totally evil and totally ready to go. And now we just really need some kind of a spark to ignite this catastrophe. Yeah, we got the fumes. Right? A great image that I came across in researching this Cold War standoff was two guys up to their chest in a bathtub of gasoline, each yelling at each other about who's got more matches. Right. And you're like, that's that's the Cold War right there. Yeah, and that sounds like a very safe situation that I'm sure that both of those guys are going to emerge from <laughs> just fine. Well, again, the argument was by theorists of by theorists of nuclear deterrence was that precisely this will keep us safe because it would not make any sense to strike that first match, to be the one to generate mutual suicide. It just wouldn't make sense to do that. You know what's amazing, though, is that we had this idea of, of mutual destruction and the protection that mutual destruction gives us before the atomic bomb. This was basically the way that Europe was set out with alliances right right before World War One. Right. Exactly, which is indeed also what the Warsaw Pact and the NATO alliance kind of reminds me of a little bit. It And you're right, we have... And then World War I happened. And then World War I happened. Because somebody lit a spark. Kind of by accident. Kind of by accident. Somebody lit a spark in that bathtub. Boom. So that's the context. What could possibly go wrong? It's 1983, and our story starts on September 1st. Korean airline flight 007 departs from New York en route to Seoul, South Korea, via Anchorage, Alaska. It's a civilian airline carrier, and Nathan's going to like this. I have to look it up. It's a Boeing 747. Now, you always do this to me. Nathan, could you describe what a Boeing 747 looks like? Yeah, Boeing 747 is a massive jetliner. Four engines, swept back wings. It's got kind of a big bulbous body that gets even more bulbous as you get to the nose. It's a very distinctive looking plane. I, I can recognize a 747 from, from miles and miles away because it does have this, this strange fuselage, which 
it, it's like it's got a big head. Okay. The 747's got a great big lumpy head. Important to note, though, it is a civilian passenger plane and looks like one. Yep. You might be able to distinguish it from others, but you wouldn't necessarily mistake it for... Doesn't look like a bomber, for example. Exactly. So it takes off from New York and flies first to Anchorage, and then from there takes off and flies en route to Seoul. Something goes wrong on this flight, and the airplane drifts into Soviet space. And the Soviets scramble... MiG-23s. Of course they do. But it is then intercepted by a Sukhoi-15. The MiG-23s can't get to it, but the Sukhoi-15 does. The Sukhoi-15 was just... uh, It it was a missile truck, basically. Uh, The Americans were building similar planes to do a similar thing. One thing. If a bomber gets into your airspace, get to it as quickly as possible, deliver as much weaponry upon it as possible, and knock it out of the sky. Yeah. So that's what these things are for. They have sophisticated radars. They're not dogfighters. They're not that maneuverable, but they are extremely fast, and they carry a lot of weapons. And that was what the Sukhoi-15 was. So it has gone over there because there was a spy plane that had been identified a bit earlier, an RC-135. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is the RC-135 is based on an American jet civilian airliner. Like, as a novice, I got a picture of it in front of me. It kind of just looks like what I would think of as a passenger airplane. Yeah, like it's... Y- you could imagine this landing at the Toronto airport and you wouldn't look at it twice. You wouldn't, except if you did... If you did ponder it a little bit, you would notice that there are no portholes. There are no windows on this, like where the passengers would be able to look out of. Other than that... And the nose is a little bit elongated for some equipment. But now we're starting to get into your territory, where it's really like, for me, it just looks like an airplane. Yeah. Okay, so that is actually a reconnaissance plane. This would be uh, taking spy photographs of potentially you know, nuclear installations. And, and, and detecting uh, radio signals and, and all sorts. It would have all sorts of very complicated sensory equipment that it would be using to basically just sniff around. Right. Now, you, you can't fly over Soviet territory with a reconnaissance plane and not expect some kind of trouble from the Soviet Union. This is their airspace. Americans are not going to tolerate Soviet reconnaissance planes flying over American airspace If they do, they will get shot down. That's going to turn into some kind of incident. That might turn into a much larger incident. Things are cranked up. And so the Soviets feel completely entitled to send up the Sukhoi-15 interceptor and start, you know, trying to make contact. And if not, follow through on the kinds of threats that you might expect. So that's exactly what happens. The interceptor gets close to the airplane, and apparently tries to make radio contact. And the crew of the Korean flight 007 do not respond. Then there's a warning shot that is fired so that they would pay attention and maybe, I don't know, accompany the Sukhoi or at least answer their radio. Or change their heading. Or or... change their heading or take a look at what's what's happened. Instead... What the Boeing 747 does is actually go higher into the sky. And at this point, the pilot sees this as a deliberate act of avoidance. 
and is given the go-ahead to shoot it down, which he does. He fires at this passenger airplane, and the plane crashes near Monoran Island off the coast of Sakhalin in the Sea of Japan. All 296 passengers and crew die. Almost 300 human beings, little kids, babies. On board was a U.S. congressman, Larry McDonald, from Georgia. Now, there was a bunch of other senators on a similar flight just 15 minutes behind. And they were actually going to be on that flight. And for some reason, they they changed their schedule and were on a flight further. So more senators could have died. And from a political perspective, that's more significant. We're in a political situation. Right. That That is going to make that political situation worse. Exactly. And this caused a media firestorm. Again, this is in the context that we've been talking about with the saber rattling and the Soviet Union is the evil empire. And here they've shot down a civilian airliner full of people, moms and dads and kids, and it crashes and everybody dies. And then the Soviet Union denies that anything happened until incontrovertible evidence emerges and they do have to admit that something has happened. A lot of Americans saw this as a deliberate attack on Americans. And what had happened, just to round this story off, what had happened was that there was a fault in the autopilot. And it, it basically just, the, the arc is essentially the same. They probably would have gotten to South Korea, but instead of going around Soviet airspace, they just sort of skirted into it. Mm-hmm. So it was a really unfortunate error. Tragically, there have been other passenger planes who have been shot down for similar reasons. There was an Iranian plane shot down by an American destroyer in the 1980s. Everybody aboard killed. Uh, there was a plane shot down over Iran a couple of years ago by Iranian missile crew. Again, like this is what happens when things get cranked up, when people are on edge, when everybody's looking for threats, everything looks like a threat. And again, just innocent people get on a plane and find themselves uh, at the business end of air-to-air missiles or surface-to-air missiles. Yeah. It's, it's horrifying. It is horrifying. And it's also, back to your earlier concept of confirmation bias, seems to validate a lot of the rhetoric that, at least in the United States, is being thrown around quite loosely. Well, what makes this, uh, again, terrible from a political perspective is that now both sides appear to have gotten confirmation. Right. Because if you're on the Soviet side, you're like, look, the Americans are flying spy planes into our area. If you're on the American side, you're saying, look, the Soviets just murdered 300 innocent people. Right. And, and both, both are sides, true. And, yeah, and both sides say they are evil. Right. So that story, now I want you to take that with you into the next two stories. The temperature's already cranked up. It's really cranked up, and it's also going to be in the minds of the players who are now involved in the next stories, which happen right on the heels. We fast forward, still in 1983, to September 26th, when duty officer at the command center for the Oko nuclear early warning system hears the thing that he never wanted to hear. So this is a man named Stanislav Petrov, and he is one of the many radar operators that night. He's the duty officer. 
And his job, like there are many in the United States and across the Soviet Union and the Warsaw countries and the NATO countries, his job is to be on alert for a surprise nuclear attack. And if that does happen, if the Americans have launched missiles, one of the places it could show up for the first time is on the little radar screen directly in front of Stanislav Petrov. Exactly. In fact, there are these systems across the Arctic in Canada. It's called the Dew Line. And these were all these stations so that when the missiles were coming over the horizon, the horizon, I guess, this would be picked up and, and hopefully you would have enough time to retaliate. And that fact that you would be able to retaliate was supposed to function in some sense as a deterrent to the other group to ever try and do something this stupid. Very quick point. You would have time to retaliate. You wouldn't have time to protect yourself. Right. You, right. So you could launch more offense. No defense is possible. No defense is possible because these weapons are too big and too destructive. So Stanislav Petrov is sitting there and just after midnight, the sirens start blaring, launch, launch, launch. And this is not confined to a computer screen. This is like an all immersive surround experience like the lights are going on and off there's you can't miss it no it's really loud it's it, it's it's got to be extremely stressful to suddenly be in that situation and stanislav petrov just sits there he's looking at his radar screen and the americans have launched a missile or two. It's not clear. There are some smudges. I mean, because that's what you get on a radar screen. You get some blips and smudges. But it's not like a bird or something. Oh, this no. is like, clearly, this is a thing that's coming towards us. Mm -hmm. Now, and, he's and got... At a, at a speed and at a trajectory that it could only possibly be missiles. Right. And he's got one job. That's what his job is, is that when this situation arises... He picks up the phone, he tells his superiors, and they do what they have been trained to do, which is retaliate. Yeah, he's not an analyst. Nope. He's not supposed to interpret the data. Exactly. If they could have replaced him with a machine, they would have replaced him with a machine. They just didn't have a machine sophisticated enough then. Instead, they tried to turn him into a machine through training and reinforcement right. and conditioning. Right. And contrary to all his training, he just sits there Oh, his training Oh, his training has failed. And then... He's thinking to himself, he's like, this doesn't make sense. And he turns off the alarm. And it goes quiet. And then it starts up again. And there's more missiles that have been launched. And again, the, the klaxon, the sirens, the, the, the red lights, the, the words launch, you know, incoming. And again, I mean, he's got subordinates looking to him. Like, what are we... like? We know what you're supposed to do now, Stanislav. You're supposed to pick up your phone to the spirit. Now, because it happens a second time, he does have to pick up the phone to his superiors. He does have to report something. And he reports that there is a malfunction in the system. But he doesn't know if there's a malfunction. He does in the not system. know this. Now, I said it was contrary to all his military training. It was not entirely true because in his training, he had been taught that if a first strike were to come, it would be brutal. They're not going to send up one or two or five missiles. No, it's going to be five, dozens. It's roughly five that he is, and by the time the second 
alarm sounds. It's roughly five that have been launched. This, to him, does not seem quite right. But, of course, he doesn't know. Who knows at this point? Now, why is he so hesitant? Why doesn't he just follow his orders? Why doesn't he follow his command and his training and just report it on up? What What is it that's preventing him from doing that? Well, I think you want me to say ethics um, or some kind of morality, and I'm sure that's part of it. I mean, I said earlier that Ruppelt was going to come up again, and Ruppelt is a patron saint of the Uncover-Up. Stanislav Petrov is another patron saint of the Uncover-Up. He oh, is yeah. somebody who, did not follow, who didn't follow orders and thereby saved the world. I mean, this, this is a hero of conscience. But also, I think there was something else, which is it didn't quite add up. Like, there was also something just in the data. You, he wasn't an analyst, and yet he did a little bit of analysis. And I think he did this Occam's Razor thing. What's more likely, my Soviet machinery has got a bug in it, or the Americans have launched a rather timid first strike. Right. And given the consequences, you also have to, I think, weigh the consequences. What are the consequences going to be? If he picks up his phone and says, I have essentially proof that these missiles are incoming, I think given the climate we outlined before, there would have been a lot of people who might have just followed orders or might have just followed protocol. And the protocol was very clear. We retaliate in turn, as right quickly away. as possible. As quickly as possible. I don't think the Soviet retaliation, if they had chosen to do it, would have been five missiles in return. No, it would I, have been all the missiles. Now you imagine if that had happened. What if Stanislav Petrov picks up the phone just after midnight of September 26, 1983, reports to his superior officers that there is all indications of an incoming attack and they retaliate, and then what happens in the United States? Now, the Stanislav Petrovs or all the other early warning systems officers on the American and NATO side... All the Stan Petersons. Right. <laughs> ...are going to say, okay, here... They come the missiles. Here, here they come, and there's going to be hundreds or more, maybe thousands, and then they're going to send them, and there we are in World War III, a thermonuclear war in which... An incredible amount of people will die, potentially everybody eventually, from the impacts of that exchange. Yeah, it's it, all over then. It's in my research for this, I looked at a talk given quite recently about what would happen if there was a, quote, limited nuclear exchange between Pakistan and India. That is to say, not one of these all-encompassing, all the NATO countries, all the Warsaw Pact countries, the, the big superpowers of the Soviet Union and the Un United States. No, really. a, a localized nuclear war. Exactly. What would that do to people who are not involved? And there would be millions of casualties, hundreds of millions of casualties all around the world from things like reduced crop fertility because of a kind of a... Well, there would be a massive ash cloud from what used to be cities of millions of human beings would now just be massive conflagrations, like shooting up ash of the buildings and the people into the sky, which would then circle the earth and blot out the sun. I mean, we've had less sun just because of the Canadian wildfires. Yeah. My pepper plants yeah, you can are see struggling. It. You can legit see it in the plants that we are growing, uh, Nathan on his balcony, me in my backyard. 
the plants are stunted relative to where they would have been last year because we have this ash cover and yep. that ash cover is not nearly what it would be in the ex- in a limited nuclear exchange between two countries. Mm-hmm. So something like this would have been all-encompassing, totally devastating. Now, here's the thing. Again, I told you he did not report this up the chain of command. If he had, I am sure that the people in the KGB and then the Politburo would have been thinking about the downing of that a Korean Airlines flight with a lot of American civilians and the congressman on board. And they would have thought, this is the retaliation. It makes total sense. Here it comes. And they also would have thought about uh, Ryan, Ryan and all of the quote-unquote evidence that they had that Andropov, who at this point was the leader of the Soviet Union, not just the leader of the KGB, he was now the leader of the Soviet Union, this paranoid man, and he was 100% convinced that the Americans were going to do something like this. Right. And they had, I mean, those lights were on. Think about the parking lots being full. Yeah. People were donating blood. All of it is evidence that an attack is on its way. And here they are, the blips. Let's go. Let's go. But what were those blips? Ah, that's a good question. Oh, yeah. Those blips were a, a rather unlikely event. Oh, dear. Of high-altitude clouds that just happened to refract sunlight directly into the satellite that was flying around, and, and, and the satellite mistook those beams of light. It would have been one of these, like, one in a... One in a million shot. Right? Where, yes, we could get a false positive, but only if a whole bunch of things align, like you, you directly reflect the sun, refract the sunlight directly into the aperture in this way, and... It'll and it never just happen. it would never happen except it did and it was completely innocuous it was just sunlight reflecting off clouds that the radar system effectively misinterpreted and sent to the radar operators as okay this has got to be a missile this is why i tell all my students when i'm talking about the cold war take out your phones go to the calendar app go to september 26th and put in a repeating event Every year, Stanislav Petrov Day. They might forget everything else from my class. But because of their phones, years later, they'll wake up and they'll think, right, it's Stanislav Petrov Day. And the way I told them they should celebrate it is just enjoy the building that they're in not being radioactive rubble and then go breathe the air and just appreciate how not on fire the air is. I don't think fireworks would be an appropriate way to celebrate. Oh, good point. (laughs) Something quieter, maybe. So that was our second story. Oh, so we're not done almost being killed yet. We're not done almost being killed. because so that, that golf ball is still arcing towards my head. Well, it's in this case, we've sent off three golf balls mm-hmm. and two have been very, very near misses. <sighs> exactly. And, and, and we've got one more. And this one is arching towards us. And let's see. I mean, look, we're still Spoiler here. Spoiler alert. We're still here. So we know it didn't happen. But oof. but how close did we get? And this was an, an intense period. It was somewhat unique, but it also wasn't unique. These events have happened over and over again, be they nuclear accidents. I mean, again, you mentioned earlier the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. And there's a similar event in the Cuban Missile Crisis where a submarine commander did not press a button that he sh- might have, should have pressed. In which case, that whole thing would have gone totally differently, but we'll save that for another episode. Mm -hmm. 
So maybe a documentary. The, yeah, we've been at the brink so often, and I think this is also why the kind of projects that emerged out of the Cold War, the stuff that we kind of look back on, maybe with a bit of ironic laughter or it just seems so silly that they would engage in this stuff when you see the context of how real this conflict was and how close we so often got to total destruction i think it makes some of it not make sense but more plausible and reasonable that people would have pursued all the stuff that we've talked about in the previous hundred episodes that were in one way or another related to the cold war because these are the stakes and it's really tenuous. And what's the situation is about to like unravel, explode. Um, Pre precarious? There you go. It's really precarious. We've talked about the Rion or Ryan indicators. Yeah, and, and we talked about the fact that Andropov was really sure that a, a, a war was coming and, and he had his KGB analysts looking for indicators in order to kind of get a, a heads up as to when this uh, strike was going to happen. And even the tiniest little thing could be evidence. Right. But then on November 7th, 1983, the United States and NATO allies began a war game which simulated an attack on a nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. Right. So if you've trained yourself to think that an extra light in an office being on all night is evidence of a nuclear attack, imagine what this would look like. And this was so this is an exercise and its its code name is Able Archer. Now if anybody is interested in finding out more, you'll want Able Archer 83 because there were previous iterations of this war game. But it was essentially intended to train the military establishment of all the NATO countries how to actually do something like this, how to cooperate with each other, how to launch the attacks. So you got to practice sometimes. Exactly. And this is what this, this was. This was a war game to practice an all-out nuclear war with the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact countries. What could go wrong? <laughs> well, so the exercise, as always with these things, it's broken down into uh, blue team and red team. Or in this case, actually, it was blue team and orange team, where blue is the NATO allies and then orange are the other guys, in this case, the Soviet Union. And the idea was that they, the orange side, had began with a chemical attack on NATO countries. And that's this, the scenario. That's exactly. That's the scenario. And this begins this mock escalation. And this is all scripted. The script is known actually by all the players and they have to adhere to the script. They're not allowed to deviate. It's not a game in any sense of the word in which the ending is still open. No, they're running a simulation. Exactly. It's more a war simulation in which everybody is going to do their thing. But the idea is that... It's going to go from the Soviet Union has started with a chemical attack and this is going to result in a full-scale nuclear war. And that's the simulation. That was begun on November 7th, 1983. Again, you have the Soviet Union who is listening 
and they're watching. And paranoid. And they are paranoid, and they've got their Rian indicators, and they are looking for specific markers. They're looking for specific things to happen to alert them of the fact that this is, this is, this is now the time when it's going to go down. It was a simulation. So that's important to know that it wasn't a actual full mobilization. A lot of this was actually, not all of it, but a lot of it was actually just in signal intelligence. So the radio communication would be, okay, now you guys are on this level of alert and you're going to ready these missiles and that and that. But it wasn't a full-scale mobilization. But there were actual changes in the world. And in fact, this Able Archer included, Able Archer exercise, included a bunch of new elements, including, and I got this actually from a national security uh, report that looked into kind of this incident and how aspects of it went a bit wrong. There was a radio silent airlift of 19,000 U.S. soldiers to Europe. Mm -hmm. Well, again, you're at the, in the Soviet Union. You're waiting for this. The shooting down of that airplane is still in the back of your mind. And here, almost 20,000 U.S. soldiers are suddenly airlifted into NATO countries in full radio silence. And, and think about how many airplanes that is. Like, you can maybe get 400 in a giant C-5 transport plane. Think about the massive mobilization that, like, there's just dozens of giant aircraft streaking towards Europe now. Command shifts from permanent war headquarters to alternate war headquarters. Uh-oh. The Soviets are picking up a lot of the signals from the NATO simulation here, and they pick up that the Allied commander approves 25 targets in Czechoslovakia, East Germany, and Poland for a nuclear strike. Like, this is, they're getting this info. Yeah, this isn't ambiguous. This isn't vague. This isn't something that requires interpretation. This is, holy shit. Exactly. And, and then there were also, there was a bit of historical accident. Two weeks earlier, on October 23rd, there had been a terror attack on a Marines base in Beirut, which killed 241 U.S. soldiers. Now, just as a response to this, this led to tightening or heightening of the security measures across all U.S. facilities all over the world. Which is, again, if you were on the Soviet side with your uh, Rion indicator checklist... Looks like, hella sketchy. Okay, you know, tightening of security, changing of command bases, silently moving troops into Western Europe. Did we mention the Pershing missile? Yeah. Uh, which has now been deployed or stationed in NATO allied countries, which with a strike range of, you know, less than 10 minutes. There's also a massive increase in cipher communications, that is, uh, encrypted communications, which happens just after the United States invades Grenada without telling anybody, and the Brits are super annoyed at not being included in any of the decision-making. And so there's a whole flurry of communications, of course, encrypted between Thatcher and Reagan. So increased cipher communications. You've got the missiles. You've got troop movements. You've got the U.S. on high alert. And then you have the war game in which things, you know, people are saying things like, we've got these targets. And, and so, of course, the Soviet Union 
is like, okay, it's go time. Well, you don't even need to be paranoid at that point. Right? If, if I heard all that, I would think, hey, you know what I think is about to happen? I think we're about to get nuked. I mean, to go back to your earlier, you, you know, your paranoid thinking that your partner is cheating on you. That's when you walk in and they're with another person. Well, no, I was going to say you find a condom, yeah. you find a this, you find a that. Now, you can still, that could still be all an accident it might somehow. might be an explanation, right. But, but it's getting increasingly It's getting unlikely. to the point where if you are already paranoid, now it's like, okay. I mean, here it is. So now the Soviet Union actually mobilizes. I mean, they for real mobilize. They start to put all of their missile silos on, or the people who are running it, on high alert. They have these mobile missile units. They sort of look like a mixture between a tank and a truck. Yep. It's got a missile in the back of it. They're in the forests in East Germany. You know, they're, they're there. The United States is also picking this up. And they're like... Hey, what's going on? They're they're like mobilizing. So of course this gets some people in the United States worried in turn. There were some counter indicators for the Soviets. There was a spy named Reiner Rupp, whose code name was Topaz, and he had worked himself up into NATO hierarchy, and he was just like you know one of those old-fashioned spies using like a Minox camera to take pictures of secret documents. And one of the documents he was able to send over to the Soviet Union is called MC-161, which was a detailed account of what the Soviets knew about NATO. Topaz is also in communication with his handlers in the Soviet Union, and they are pressing him a lot for, hey, what's going on on the ground? Like, assuming there would be some kind of civilian or some kind of management of the civilian population. There'd be increased civil defense. There would be maybe even movement of people out of main cities. There would be something, yeah, for sure. And Topaz is like, look, this is not happening. I don't see anything. But also, guys, NATO countries are mostly in Europe. We're not going to go along with this. I mean, think about Germany will just be wiped off the map. It doesn't matter if you're East or West Germany. There is no more Germany here. And nobody is that anti-communist in, well, okay. Well, uh, well okay, yeah. that's, that's one of those, those uh, two broad statements. But most Germans, having still many of them in living memory, the Second World War, are not eager for their entire country to be, be obliterated because of an you know, argument between these two superpowers. That's fair. That's fair to say. Most people don't want complete nuclear annihilation. <laughs> So Topaz is one of the people who is sort of applying some breaks, and yet there are so many indicators that this is happening for real. So Able Archer, the Able Archer exercise lasts for five days, and on each day the threat level moves up, and they go through their DEFCON threat levels, one through five. Do you want to just tell us what that is? Yeah, DEFCON 5 is the, is the chillest. Okay. So they go through all their threat levels of DEFCON 5, which That's is... like, chill out, everything's fine. To DEFCON 1. Things are screwed. Yeah. The, the exercise term for DEFCON 1 is cocked pistol. Oh, dear. So that means that nuclear war is imminent or has already begun. That's right. DEFCON 1. Right. And again, in this exercise, they take it all the way to there. Ah. And then the exercise ends. Ah. <laughs> and 
no one in the States or in NATO realized how seriously this was being taken by the Soviet Union. At the time, people were like, look, it's just an exercise. Of course they know it's an exercise. But this is exactly what the Nazis had said in their lead up to their invasion. They built up troops on the border. Hitler said to Stalin, don't worry, it's just an exercise until all the troops were there and then it was go time and then they actually did invade. And then even then Stone didn't believe it. Right. And this Soviet leadership, who is now very aged, lived through that and lived through it at a time when they were children. They yeah. were they were grown men to some extent in the army. This <laughs> this seemed eerily familiar and I think that again we got extremely lucky that a hardliner within the Soviet Union didn't preempt the NATO countries and just decide to go ahead and launch that attack first because it would be safer that way. I'm legit surprised it didn't happen. I am also legit surprised it didn't happen. And, and what if what happened to Petrov happens during that? Right. I mean, it was a, it was, it was a, a difference of eight weeks, mm-hmm. that, that mistake yep. or and that accident. Yeah. We're goners. Or what if the Korean airline flight is shot down? Yeah, because then they think it's a bomber or, you know, who knows what they think it is. Or maybe they just are like, forget it, here they come and let's press the button. Yeah. So this was a period, a three-month period in 1983 where I'm blissfully playing with my Smurfs and, and, and you're trying to avoid being hit by golf balls, where actually there was a lot more action going on in the world and This, I think, demonstrates the perilous nature of these weapons and and why so much of the stuff that has been fueled for our podcast comes from this time. Mm -hmm. When looking in, listen, if looking into psychics, if there's anything there, back to our very first episode. We can't afford to miss a trick. Right? And I am surprised that we survived. There are two things I take away from this. One is that a lot of these problems have not actually been dealt with, which is one of the things that Nathan and I have discovered going to the CARP bunker, the Defund bunker, and doing a research for that, is that for uh, many cities, especially in the United States, but not only there, there is now currently a nuclear bomb that is targeted to that city. There are still huge amounts of nuclear bombs. There is still the quote-unquote football, which is the launch on warning suitcase object that follows the president around wherever he goes or potentially she after the next election and they then have the codes to launch a full-scale nuclear attack at any moment these weapons still exist yeah the other thing though and it's maybe mostly through stanislav petrov the fact that individual heroism in the guise of disobedience in the guise of critical thinking has literally saved the world is somewhat hopeful. But I don't think that we can rely on that as our fail-safe measure. Imagine this thought experiment. Imagine there are 100 worlds. We have 100 multiple universes. I feel like in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we lost a bunch of those worlds. Yeah. Because things could have gone one way or the other way. So let's say we lost 30 worlds in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Let's say we lost 10. Yeah, maybe we lost 10. Let's be nice and conservative with this. Yeah. 
we lose 10 there. In the late 60s, there's increased tension. Maybe we lose a couple there. In the 70s, maybe we get by without losing any. Ah, accidents are always possible. Accidents are always possible. We still have like, what, 80 worlds left? One of them... Lose a couple worlds. Someone's going to make a mistake. Yep. And then I feel just in 1983, maybe we lose 40. Yeah. Maybe we lose 40 worlds. And at some point, our luck is going to run out. Yeah. I, I kind of get the feeling it's like I have survivor guilt. We're one of the few worlds that made it through that so far. But we are running out of worlds. We are running out of chances. And at some point, we're going to have to say, we need to back off this precipice. Now, if you're interested in this stuff, I highly recommend a podcast by Dr. Shelley Lesher, My Nuclear Life. Her podcast is great. If you like this kind of stuff, you'll love what she does. Yeah. That golf ball is still up in the air. Yeah. And we're still standing on the ground. Yeah. And are we going to be lucky enough that there are some kind of ameliorating factors that somehow we miss it again? I mean, eventually, we're going to get our teeth knocked out. Yeah. I've got one last story. So this happens... I I wasn't sure whether to include this because it's not 1983. All right. It's 1984. All right. August 1984. August 1984. President Ronald Reagan is getting ready to do a live broadcast on the radio. Nothing important, you know, just, you know, typical presidential broadcast on national public radio. And he's asked to do a pre-broadcast mic check. I mean, we've done this sort of thing all the time. Sure. You always run out of things to say. One, two, one, two, check, check, check. So his mic check is... My fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you that today I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. No. Yes. My fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. And that gets leaked out to the press. And the Russians hear about it. Like, that's funny, I guess. If you have our kind of humor, it is. But like, come on, Reagan, read the room. (laughs) Our margins of error are really slight. We, I don't think, we might not be able to survive a joke like that. No, no. 